Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. In tonight's show, I'm going to play the final segment of the interview that Tracy Savage and I did with Rosemary Ellen Guiley concerning the topic of vampires. After the interview, be sure to check out Rosemary's uh, new second edition release of her encyclopedia of vampires and werewolves. Yeah, the the other thing that I uh, had, in fact, the first question I asked the you know the person that that I know who is an exceedingly intelligent person. It's not like they're you know they follow trends or anything like that. Uh, you know, I was concerned about the uh, bloodborne diseases, you know, AIDS and hepatitis and things like that. The answer I got, I wasn't real excited about. Um, you know, the they believe that their energy is capable of you know basically weeding out the uh the unsavory you know parts of the uh, the blood if there were any diseases in there and it protects them you know as a result but not not anybody can do that that was a basic generic answer i got i don't know if you're running into the same thing or or how they how they treat uh, the possibility of diseases like that I have run into a, a few individuals who feel they've got some supernatural immunity to mm-hmm. uh, to bloodborne diseases that affect you know the lowly mortals like the rest of us um, might be vulnerable too. But uh, a lot of them do seem to be very realistic about it. And my perspective is that's just foolish to think that you've got uh, some sort of uh, a defense against um, hepatitis and, and AIDS, and uh, Father Sebastian was commenting, uh, and he, he reinforced this uh, when John and I met with him, that um, many vampires find hepatitis C far scarier than HIV. Oh, yeah. As well they should. It's uh, much more pervasive. There, uh, It can live... The spores from hepatitis can live in dried blood on a countertop in the open air for 15 days. The bloodborne pathogens are so pervasive these days, uh, you won't even know that you have a disease for many years. It, it stays latent within your system. I have such a hard time with with uh, the little bit of contact with the 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 sanguine vampires that I've known because they they do truly believe that when they mix their blood with somebody else's that they're getting their immunities. It's sort of like a transferred immunity idea. Mm-hmm. And I finally asked one of them, I said, well, why don't you go to the CDC? We have a real problem with malaria. Maybe you could help out. And they just blinked and looked at me. I thought, well, you know, where does the compartmentalizing stop there? You know, it's if this was true and real, then why aren't they literally going out and, and helping society to, to, you know, make everybody have a vampire blood filter on them and then there won't be any diseases, right? 
<laughs> but then th- that's just me projecting. Of course, the conversation stopped. But <laughs> gee, I <laughs> wonder messed, why. Messed up the yeah, it messed up the whole mystique, you know. But um, so they are aware of diseases, but a lot of them, and probably that's what's gone, what's taken a lot of them out of the bloodletting into the actual. Because uh, if you're in the mindset where you're you're going to be bloodletting, you're yeah, I think you've already broken down those barriers where you kind of don't care, it's, or or you've you've got that cognitive dissonance where you've decided that that's what you're you're immune to to it all. I I really now Marcus actually has details about this mtDNA. I mean this this person went way into the scientific realm of it, talking about properties of like genetic properties. Are vampires genetic? Do these people believe, or are they created? And I've then it becomes both. genetic. Um, okay. And um, well, when when Anne Rice was catching on in in a lot of quarters, uh, we had to turn vampire, and that's a theme that was elsewhere in fiction and film too. That you were bitten by a vampire, and uh, if if your blood was drained to a certain point, if you reached the point of death and then you drank the vampire's blood, uh, you would be turned into a vampire. You would be initiated. And when I did my first book on vampires, Vampires Among Us, in the late 1980s, um, these vampire subcultures were just in their early stages, just, you know, really beginning to kind of coalesce. And a lot of people that I interviewed who thought they were vampires followed this model of being initiated. They would go out and find somebody who convinced them that they were already a vampire, and then they would get initiated, usually through some sort of blood and sex ritual. It wouldn't be to the point where you were practically exsanguinated, but it would be enough to satisfy them to feel that they were initiated. And... Uh, now that's, there are still those vampires out there, but uh, another part of the living vampire community and, and one that, uh, that Father Sebastian's more a- active in is the awakened vampire. Uh, people who feel that genetically they're a bit different from the average human being and that this goes way, way back to ancient times and they are born a vampire or predisposed to vampire vampirism and at some point in their lives they awaken to this heritage and this destiny yeah that uh, they could be thinking about uh, what we call junk DNA you know the, the stuff that's not used yep. and maybe becomes activated either through self-meditation or exposure to other energies or if you get enough energy perhaps it'll uh, it'll cause a, uh, a saturation and an avalanche effect where your junk DNA turns on you know that's I don't know if that's that's true but I think that's uh, the reasoning they're using in a lot of cases one of the things that, that I found back in the 80s uh, which probably still applies today to at least some people who become involved in this, is that once individuals became convinced that they were vampires, their behavior did start to change. And uh, I think that um, if you are convinced that you are something, there's auto-suggestion that I think literally affects you physiologically. For example, um, 
you know, their habits would change. They would start to become nocturnal rather than daytime people if they had the ability to do that uh, job-wise. Um, they developed allergies to foods, especially garlic, because vampires are supposed to be repelled by garlic. Uh, they oh, yeah. felt that they couldn't tolerate uh, sunlight in, in the same manner. And uh, some of these changes would be rather sudden and some would be more gradual. And it seemed to me that they were fitting themselves into the mold that they perceived vampires, uh, that this is how they perceived vampires should behave and, and be affected by things. And, uh, you know, 20 years on, uh, a lot of vampires, living vampires, don't necessarily think that. You know, they'll go out and have a plate of pasta with loads of garlic on it uh, and still call themselves a vampire. Yeah. So, there are different perceptions that I think power the way people view themselves and shape their lives, and it sort of molds itself around their identity as a vampire and what, and what they think that, that a vampire is. And, and, and make no mistake, the mind is, is powerful enough to actually cause physiological changes. That's, that's a known fact. Um, Maybe they can cause genetic changes. I, I know a lot of times when, when people live together for a long time, they, they actually, I, I used to think it was just coincidence, but uh, it seems that they start looking like each other. And I don't know if that's because their minds are, are working together. Well, a lot of people look like their dogs, too, after a while. Oh <laughs> that's what I was thinking that's right true. when you said that. <laughs> Well, it's it's made me wonder, uh, you know, about this process uh, that it's literally um, a subculture and a mythology that's taking shape right right before our eyes. It's myth in the making. And I often think to myself that the anthropologists of the future will look back on these people and maybe even consider them to be a a whole subset um, of people. That's quite possible. That w- the way that we've looked um, at people from centuries past, of you know, for example, like the witch and sorcerer communities, that there there are people born with certain genetic traits that were automatically considered. Uh, oh yeah, be, hereditary witches, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. so now now we have, uh, I guess you would call them hereditary vampires. Yeah, that's yeah. what I've heard. I've heard them say that they passed it to their children, and I was wondering if you had had any contact with people like that. I haven't interviewed any vampire families. I've uh, I've had uh, interviews with people who say that they see vampire traits in their family, and uh, they could interpret that and in, uh, what they know of some of their ancestors. But um, I haven't yet interviewed people who have children that they say that they passed it on to. I, those individuals are, are definitely out there, uh, the same way that we have, what, several generations now of what I would call the new Wiccans and the new Pagans, uh, people who have been very active in, in those streams of society since World War II, uh, who've had children who've had children who've grown up with that, uh, and the, the same thing is going to happen with the vampires if they manage to maintain some sort of societal cohesion. Yeah, I would imagine a lot of them are kind of uh, 
you know, reclusive in that area because in some states, if Child Protective Services finds out uh, the parents are vampires, you're liable to lose your kids. So, absolutely, it's, yeah, it's it's probably something that they're not real excited about jumping out and telling people. Right. Uh, it's some of these the subcultures go very, very deep, and uh, as as I'm sure you know, Marcus, uh, in the magical communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who are involved in in things uh, within families for generations that they just don't talk about. Yeah. Oh, very true. Very true. Now, I'm going to stretch the boundaries of belief a little bit here and uh, ask you your opinion on this. It's a theory I've you know been kicking around myself about uh, people like um, the living vampire uh, culture, uh, sanguines, and and people that really have adopted it. And it's not just a, you know, a, a hobby or anything like that with them. They really believe that they need energy. They need, uh, whether from blood or from uh, psychic sources, they still need uh, energy to survive. Now, what I'm wondering... Uh, you know, you know that uh, I, I work a lot with the Monroe Institute, and uh, and I know you're familiar with their work because you you've been there. But um, the uh, a lot of the things that uh, we work with and has been discovered is that uh, people who cross over, who die, and really are have strong ties to the earth or to physical life or to people. Uh, or to addictions, even it could be drug, it could be sex, whatever. Uh, people that have such a strong time, they they may be reluctant to move on to where they're supposed to, to move in the higher vibrational levels, and as a result, they they hang around to feed their addiction. I'm wondering if some of these people who have these uh, vampiric traits, you know, that believe they need blood or energy, uh, if they die and they really believe they need that. And, you know, especially if they don't have a, a strong belief in the afterlife, if they hang around on an energetic level, perhaps the etheric or, phys- or astral planes, and feed off of humans uh, when they sleep, you know, much like shadow people appear to people uh, in their sleep and, uh, and, and terrify them. And that's, you know, that's something else we'll get into in a, in a little bit, the energy part of it and fear and all that. But I was wondering if you, what your thoughts are on that uh, or if you've ever encountered you know, any ideas like that. You know, that, that's a very interesting idea, Marcus, and it actually raises rather uh, alarming considerations that if yeah. we have a growing and substantial <laughs> yep. subculture of people who practices this way and and beliefs about the afterlife do vary considerably in the, in the vampire community. But, um, yes, are we, are, are we also going to have consequences of an increase in predatory afterlife vampires uh, that are going to come back to plague us much the way our ancestors felt endangered by literally the spirit out of the grave. It's kind of a scary thought, but I, I think that it's a very plausible scenario. Yeah, it would be like a whole new evolution for, for attacks because when we sleep, um, we're, not, we're, we're really kind of open. We can't defend ourselves as much as when we're awake. And, and there does seem to be, at least from what I've witnessed and, and read, there seems to be a lot of attacks on people 
you know, the old hag syndrome, things like that, when, when they're sleeping. And there is a, um, always seems to be a great deal of fear associated. And it's beyond the point that someone's standing in your room that's not supposed to be there. I've actually had that happen to me when I was in high school. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's like an unprecedented, uh, unprecedented amount of fear that is generated. And in my Toltec shamanic lineage, the um, part of the teachings is that we have energy layers. You know, our, our energy bodies aren't just a blob of energy. It's actually layered in several layers. And when uh, during certain emotional conditions, the, uh, such as fear, uh, it causes the, the layers to separate like the you know, skin on an onion, except they separate in space. As they separate, uh, they start leaking energy, life force, you know, chi, prana, whatever name you want to use. Uh, it's, it's like poking holes in a bucket and it starts leaking out for all these, you know, any type of vampiric creature around just to lap up and, and feed. And, and so I don't know if that's why uh, shadow people sightings, um, us, you know, I don't want to go as far as alien, you know, in this, in this case, but, you know, oh, we're go people. Ahead. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> why not? <laughs> uh, you know, where, where people are, are that, uh, that afraid and losing energy. If, um, you know, if this could be, you know, a possible explanation for that. And, and if it's going to be like a new culture coming up, we're going to find out what kind of things these people, where their weaknesses are, where, what is the sanguine weakness? It's, you know, Dracula had the cross and everything, but if they're not Christian, I don't think it's going to do any good. Mm, I, do I agree with that. that. Predatory nighttime attacks are on the rise. Uh, certainly the reporting of them is, is on the rise, but I think yeah, that's what I was afraid of. Spells are, are on the increase. Now with the shadow people, um, I've, um, I think that they're, my opinion is that they're ultra-terrestrials, they're entities from another dimension, mm-hmm. um, but they do vampirize us, and it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that at least some of them could be some sort of um, shell or astral human vampire, uh, you know, that's, that's generated uh, by the scenario that, that we're talking about. And they vampirize people by uh, generating fear out of them. And I think they get a real energy hit off extreme terror and panic, which is how people yeah. usually respond to them. Yeah, you, well, can, you can actually you know, be scared so bad that your energy layers separate to the point where you're losing so much life force energy that it can cause organs to malfunction. It can cause uh, cardiac arrest. Uh, you can literally be scared to death. You can become toxic to yourself with uh, with uh, these uh, responses, biochemical responses in your own. You know, this is observable through science. I mean, they've they've uh, people that are paralyzed, quote unquote, by fear. I mean, mm-hmm. you it's depression and everything else. You know, I I watch these shows on TV. The you know the this the the paranormal craze, and um, and of course you know we have the team and all that that goes out and we we do the investigations and whatnot. And one one recurring idea that I see is uh, there's this big controversy over whether or not they drain energy. And I've watched 
these investigators, uh, I'm not going to say any shows in particular, but they say, use me as a battery, take my energy. So I don't see that it's that far out of the realm of, 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 of well, theoretical, your, the theory that you're talking about, um, that they can't take it, you know, uh, psychically or in these astral realms i mean even shaman in all different cultures use smoke to bring the astral planes closer together you know to be able to do their their otherworldly work so i i would imagine that um the vampire idea that seems to be a little bit more tangible and it just falls right into it i don't see how it's that far separated i can understand how you came up with that idea um, we have the ghost hunters that that say, "Well, they're draining battery, you know, life out of my batteries." Or, or I think Jeff Bellinger actually did a, a some sort of a scientific test or a controlled test on whether or not batteries did get drained. I don't know if it was really conclusive, but this is a very common idea. So I don't see why people couldn't be considered batteries or animals at the same time. Psychic batteries. Does that make any sense? Why wouldn't that work yeah, with does. the vampire yeah. community? Uh, I mean, it's I the same it idea. Some of these paranormal investigators, any, anybody who goes into a, an active environment and uh, invites the spirits to make use of them as, <laughs> as food is just plain, yep. I'm not even going to say foolish, it's just downright stupid. Yeah, oh, we, we have one. Yeah, we have one on tape. She put her head on a haunted chair. This is like the oldest story, everybody, even back in jo- Joliet Paranormal Radio, we, we joked about it. And she put her head right on the chair, and she decided this is the first time she ever did it. She's just going to use me, you know, and we we grabbed our cameras real quick. <laughs> we're like, all right, we're going to have they Linda will. Blair in the back seat. <laughs> so, it, and it's like. People like uh, me get the phone call later, something's attached <laughs> to them, and they've got all sorts yep. of yep. problems. Yep, they keep well, you I busy. Attached. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and it's funny because what will well, happen is you have these people. And they go into a, a, a home or a family, and then they tell them, yes, you have this, yes, you have that going on in your home. That feeds to the fear. And I can only imagine that, you know, the succubi incubi idea, which isn't that far removed from the idea of the vampire. This, I mean, this is your, your old-fashioned idea where they come in in the night they're seductive. They get you when you're vulnerable, and they have these mechanisms, this imagery, and then, then the beast comes out later. Once you're already sucked in, you can't move. You're paralyzed. You're scared, and they're going for the kill. And you know, and that's that's sort of the romantic version. But it's not that far removed. I mean, we have the idea of exorcisms go way, way, way back. So how how would a person What's the protocol that goes on with these the vampire community? I mean, there there are people that are actively seeking it, and they've decided that they want to either a you know abate their curiosity, or they they really uh, are just turned on by this this lifestyle and the, the, just the sheer idea of it. So, what what would be the typical protocol of somebody say going? Into how do they get into the society? I know that there are people that are going to be listening, going, "Wow, how do I do that?" Not that we're encouraging anybody to do this, 
<laughs> but that's that's our natural draw. We want to know more about it. So how would someone get to know more about it that isn't just going to go out and buy a book at Barnes & Noble or go on the Internet and start looking things up? They need to buy Rosemary's books. Well, yeah. I mean, I know I did a long time ago. So, <laughs> uh, Well, I, I would like to address, uh, first of all, the sexual aspect of the vampire, uh, which you touched on earlier. In folklore, the vampire is sexually rapacious. This is not an invention of fiction. Fiction glamorized the sexual aspect of vampires. But um, the vampire is a blend of a variety of supernatural entities. There's no clear-cut boundary between the vampire and the poltergeist, the nightmare hag, uh, the revenant, the walking dead, uh, the incubus and the succubus. The vampire embodies all of those things in varying degrees. And uh, especially the, the Eastern European vampire, the returning dead, was considered uh, above all else to be sexually rapacious. And in fact, that's sometimes how the vampire killed people, it was believed. They just kind of fornicated them to death. So wow. um, the, whole, the whole idea of the sexless vampire was, was really a product of um, Victorian fiction, um, you know, that substituted the, the blood aspect of it for the eroticism. So uh, the incubus-succubus aspect of that is, is quite real in folklore. In terms of how people connect with the vampire communities, I think there are ample resources online, and uh, people can find their their way into uh, clubs and organizations. Uh, there are contact uh, links in uh, books. Uh, role-playing people are probably good sources for word of mouth. You know, how do I um, how do I get connected? Uh, the the community is not as hidden as it used to be in years past. Yeah, it seems out there. In fact, there seems like every major city, you know, has a pretty good population of, uh, you know, the living vampires, um, you know, in clubs. You know, Denver, for example, has, uh, I think, about three different vampire clubs. And that you know of. That I know of, yeah. <laughs> you know of. I try not to hang out in those places too often, you know. <laughs> I think that uh, there are different levels, too, um, that there are some uh, organizations that are very much out in the open, and then there's always a very deep underground of uh, organizations that are far more secretive that it takes a good while to find out about. Well, you interviewed uh, the Transylvanian, or, or met with the Transylvanian Society of Dracula, didn't you? Am I, I wrong? I did, yes, and, and uh, that's really more of a... Um, we call it a fan club, um, people okay. who are uh, interested in, in uh, studying vampires in film and folklore and fiction. But in any of these organizations, you do find a mix of people, uh, including some people who consider themselves to be real vampires. Uh, and I certainly found uh, in the living vampire subcultures that most of those individuals have a high degree of interest in how the vampire has evolved in folklore and fiction, it, it would be considered part of their heritage. There are some websites that have a great deal of high-quality high information about vampires. The Atlanta Vampire Alliance maintains one of these sites, and um, one of the individuals who's 
very prominent in the AVA, uh, Murticus, uh, has uh, another website called Suscitatio, and it, uh, it has scholarly articles on it, reviews of just about every book and film you can imagine on vampires, statistical surveys, and uh, you know some serious attempts to define and understand the, uh, the nature of the vampire community. So there's, there's all kinds of information out there. How many would you say, I mean, I, Marcus and I were talking about this earlier, that he said thousands, and I, and I, like, I jumped into after having met with some of these people. I mean, I'm looking at just San Diego, just improper, like, as far as population is concerned. I personally, after meeting so many of these people, it's just a very small little tip of the iceberg that I was allowed to look at. I think there's millions of them all over the globe and and the World Wide Web is bringing everybody together, you know, quicker than anything. So uh, personally, I believe that these these subcultures aren't are just they're alive and well and prospering big time, especially in times of economic stress. I mean, everybody turns toward uh uh the the thing that they know the best and that goes right down to our spiritual core um, which is the reason why religion becomes such a big deal whenever we're having uh, uh, major problems within our society so for me a lot of people have thrown away their old trappings of what they grew up with going to Sunday school and that sort of thing and now they're looking more toward you know what they're really you know they're they're following in these freer societies like ours where they can just access just about anything that's the reason why the subculture is really growing. They like the sexiness of it, the eroticism. They like the idea of it. And, you know, the media didn't hurt it at all. It's actually, you know, promoting it. So, but the real subculture that we're talking about, I personally believe there's millions of them out there. I don't know if you guys think that's just jumping off the cliff with the numbers, but I, I do think that that's true. Just looking at the few people that, that are out being public about it, there are so many, you know that there's got to be hundreds of thousands below them on each one of those levels, you know? Well, you know, from a global perspective, you're probably not far off, uh, Tracy. It's it's really hard to pin down with any of these uh, subculture groups. Um, the self-reporting factor, I've always thought, it's just the tip of the iceberg, that most of it is submerged, and people who will never openly acknowledge, but they, they maintain the lifestyle anyway. So um, globally, it would not be unreasonable to, to put it in, in the millions. It's just hard to know for certain. Uh, you know, the vampires don't sit down and answer a census that comes in the mail. <laughs> uh, these, these organizations have, uh, some of them have attempted to do census uh, taking in the past. But it's, it's very dependent on people knowing about the census and then being willing to self-report. So now we're looking at a combination, and this is, this is the sense that I got from the people that, that I spoke to, plus Father Sebastian's comments 
uh, and things that Marcus said about his friend that's highly educated. And most of these people I've spoken to are not just some teenager that's been reading too much Twilight and wants to get sparkly. These are people that have degrees. They're, they hold positions in society. They're not necessarily people who, who you know, sleep in a coffin with some dirt. You know, it, it's they're not the Lestat idea so much. It's it's their it's uh it's a lifestyle that they do after work. And um and what I what I noticed about it was that um as far as uh looking at society, I mean you can even look at Tyler Durden from Fight Club. I mean he I think there was a quote in that movie, uh, you can follow swallow a pint of blood before you get sick. Why was that so fascinating to us? Right? Well that became such a, a huge cult icon. Why? And and I think when I was looking at religion and throwing away religion, I have seen vampire religion on the rise personally. This this is something that 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 I notice. I mean, people. A lot of people aren't going to go into that because it's the supernatural, and they're going to more glam onto the idea of the Tyler Durden idea, where they they like to watch people get their butts kicked in the octagon and that sort of thing. It's always been part of our our human fascination to live vicariously and watch other people, you know, take it and 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 have a beat down. But religion wise, I how how what are is your experience with it becoming an actual church of vampirism i mean i know that there are different you know sects out there and stuff that have their own ideology but isn't that a, a new idea that's that's becoming in the forefront of a lot of these groups the, the position that religious vampirism plays right now is a very small role relative to the rest of the the vampire subculture um but um who knows how big it could become? Uh, nobody ever thought that um, Wicca and paganism were going to explode into one of the fastest growing uh, religious streams in in modern, at least in the Western world today. Uh, yeah. You know, decades ago, people sort of wrote it all off as uh, a fringe thing that that appealed to. Um, you know, alternative lifestylers and hippies and whatnot, and that proved definitely not to be the case. And right. the same thing could happen with uh, with vampire religion. I think it's a little more bizarre and offbeat and exotic than something like Wicca or paganism, uh, or even the Church of Satan, which probably struck uh, a lot of people as uh, a big joke, you know, when that started. And, and uh, that's, you know, there, there are a number of satanic churches today, and they have, you know, quite substantial followings, and they're quite serious about what they do. So it's it's a big unknown right now just how much a religious aspect of vampirism is going to appeal to people who enter this subculture. Um, werewolves and vampires seem to be... <laughs> I just did a show last night on vampires, so I've got I got vampires <laughs> on, uh, or uh, uh, werewolves Were on the mind. Yeah, yeah, and and of course during the Middle Ages there were entire towns that were afflicted with vampirism. Of course, Urgot and all that, but um, this was I mean it's not really going to make that much difference to a person who's being burned at the stake. You know, it's pretty real to them that they've just been, you know, accused and convicted of being a werewolf. 
how is it that in our in our psyche we sort of see them evolved at the same time you know vampirism and werewolfism but i didn't see i couldn't find a lot of research on vampires getting burned at the stake i mean i guess maybe they were smarter <laughs> they got away <laughs> they 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 were able to fly off as a bat or something whatever but they 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 didn't get hit but their their evolution of 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 who they were were it along those same lines i don't see how um they escaped the the inquisitors you know during that time and well, and i and i go ahead the vampire cult uh in europe revolved around the dead uh, there were pockets of living vampires that were you know we would call them witches or sorcerers today and I'm speculating that if any of those people got caught in the dragnet of the Inquisition, they would have been treated as witches, not as vampires. Oh, okay. Vampires were, you know, the, the returning dead from the grave. Um, there, there's always been a folklore connection between vampires and, and werewolves, uh, and it's been rather vague in some beliefs. Um, it, it got strengthened much more in film and fiction and a lot of uh, things that that became part of the modern mythology of werewolves are more fictional elements and folklore elements. And, of course, uh, Bram Stoker reinforced that connection by giving the Count wolf-like um, appearances. You know, he has hairy palms and long pointed nails that look more like claws and his eyebrows meet, you know, he has very bushy eyebrows that, that meet in the middle, and he's kind of got this wolfish sort of demeanor to him, which as he uh, drinks more and more blood in England, uh, those characteristics start to fade, and he, um, he becomes more refined in appearance. Uh, and he commands um, the animals, you know, he commands the, the uh, Bersicker, um wolf at the London Zoo. Uh, he takes the form of a wolf himself on the ship, uh, the Demeter, when it crashes in Whitby. So that connection got very firmly cemented in, uh, in fictional lore. Early, uh, the early stories about werewolves uh, in medieval times were a, a lot of um, more like romantic stories. Um, that had to do with betrayal, and it was usually uh, betrayal of a man by an unfaithful woman, uh, and he would become cursed to be a werewolf and roam the forest, and somebody noble usually would uh, help him out, and and uh, he could regain his true form, and the wicked would be punished, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, and those were much different than uh, the rampaging beast that emerged in the Inquisition, and those are very curious stories. Um, individuals who confessed to turning into wolves, usually because they had entered into a pact with the devil, thus reinforcing uh, inquisitional ideas about the, the role of evil in society. And uh, whether or not they actually did go on these bloody rampages, or whether they were a product of torture and or imagination, it gets, it gets hard to know. But during the Inquisition, right. there is a shift from the romantic werewolf into the, the criminal werewolf uh, who's out killing people. Mm -hmm. 
One thing I wanted to ask you about, Rosemary, before we run out of time, um, it, it's about uh, the topic of immortality in vampires. Uh, my last show uh, was about uh, two um, real-life experiences I had you know, involving vampires. And um, one was a Toltec shaman, and uh, the other one was uh, a non-human entity. But um, the the Toltec shaman was it's it's part of the lineage that I'm in. And I was with uh, Dr. Castaneda one time in uh, the Sonoran Desert, and he had taken me down there for this uh, specific purpose to to meet this individual. And uh, his name was Don Miguel, and uh, we went out in the desert and sat there and camped around. You know, had a fire going, and uh, you know, I won't go into all the the details, but um, basically, this person, Don Miguel, was uh, of the Toltec lineage, but they're like um, they're like separate from the from the other shaman. They're they're very reclusive. And uh, they tend to live alone. And I don't know how many of them there are, but they're, they're known as the immortal Nawals. Uh, Nawal is a person who has, you know, their energy bodies are quadrisected, where most humans, you know, most normal people, in other words, are bisected. They're, you know, just like the brain is split down the middle, on the right and left side. Uh, a Nawal is quadrisected. And uh, some people are born that way, and some people... I believe develop it but this particular individual uh, was called a uh, you know referred to only as a immortal in the wall and the purpose of the meeting is still not real clear in my mind but uh, when we met uh, it was just like a formal introduction uh, he, he looked like he was in his 40s he came walking out of the desert out of nowhere and there's no towns or cities or anything around and, uh, you know, Carlos introduced, you know, him. He said, uh, Marcos, this is Don Miguel. And I shook hands with him. When I shook hands with him instantly, it was like, you know, I don't know if you've ever been shocked, you know, from a 110-volt light or something, how your hand buzzes. My whole arm did that. And, uh, and it did it for probably, oh, I think it was maybe 10 seconds that he held my hand. And it was spreading all the way up into my shoulder, you know, and, and you know, it was starting to freak me out. But uh, it, uh, he let go, and it, and it stopped. And, uh, you know, it's, it was just a short conversation after that. And, you know, he said he was very pleased to meet me and turned around and walked away. And I had asked Carlos about it, uh, what that was all about. And, uh, and he made me sit down because I, you know, luckily because I was starting to get lightheaded like I was going to pass out. And he went into great detail explaining, and I explained it all on the show, but uh, that Don Miguel is is one of the more mysterious Toltec shamans. And uh, they've been around for who knows how long. Um, he said that uh, they they take energy, they take life force. Uh, which we call chi is the most common name for it. They take uh, life force, they have the ability to take it, and they use it in some manner to genetically alter their biological processes because, you know, and I have no way to substantiate or, you know, or prove this or anything. It's, this is just what I was told. Um, 
Don Miguel, like I said, he looked like he was in his late 30s, early 40s. Uh, Carlos said he was at least 500 years old, maybe older. And they they actually, you know, live an immortal life, and they they stop the processes in the body, the biological processes that cause us to age somehow by using this energy. And it's it's a lot of energy. You can't they can't take it from just anybody. Um, I I happen to be in a wall myself, or my energy. Departments, or, you know, compartments are quadrisected, which means there's there's almost like um, a baffles, is what you might think of it as inner of energy, so that when one compartment is drained, all three aren't drained at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were a bisected, uh, you know, person, which the majority of population is, if you were bisected and this type of person came and took your energy because they take huge amounts and I don't know if they can control how fast they take it, uh, they would drain almost half of your energy in at one shot, which losing that much uh, life force is enough to cause death, to cause uh, organs to start shutting down. And uh, and so they, they don't do it. It's, it's um, they, they feed, I guess you'd call it, uh, they feed off of uh, just other Nawals. And, in fact, it's called, uh, the process is called the Nawals Agreement. And what they give in exchange is, you know, it, it was a mystery to me for, for years. I'm still not, haven't fully realized it, but they either give knowledge on another level, subconscious level, or they, they do something to your own energy body to, to improve your abilities to, to manipulate energy, I believe. And uh, that's what they give in exchange for the, uh, the energy that they, they take from you. And supposedly, this is how these, these, these uh, shaman, you know, the immortal Nawals, is, is how they live. They, they eat regular food and everything, but they remain immortal um, basically, you know, as, as far as aging goes and, uh, and healing injuries, diseases, things like that through the use of pure energy, which they must have enormous capacities you know, to store it. And what my question was is, have you ever encountered any type of stories like this or in any legends or lore? Because this is the only place I've ever seen it and, or heard of it. And, you know, I wouldn't have believed it myself unless I actually met somebody. And, and whatever he did, whether he was 500 years old or older, you know, I don't know. But whatever he did, he took energy because it took me, I slept for a day after that. And it took me about three days to recover from what he did to me. Wow. Um, mm. My familiarity with stories like that really come more out of uh, traditions like you're associated with, Marcus, you know, from sorcery. Uh, and adepts, you know, spiritual adepts who have uh, learned to uh, transmute the physical body into a more energetic uh, form. Uh, in, in the vampire folklore, I found very sketchy beliefs addressing immortality. This seemed to have been something that emerged out of, of fictional vampires. Um, the folklore beliefs tend to be very vague about how long the vampire can last uh, once it's created in the after-death state. And uh, I found some beliefs that said the the period was very finite, 
practice couldn't go on any longer than, say, you know, seven years. There were other beliefs about a 40-day period being this liminal danger zone. And uh, then other beliefs that were just rather vague that indicated the vampire could subsist um, indefinitely until it was dispatched. Now, how they managed to explain, for example, in earlier times, uh, epidemics that would run their course, which usually were blamed on vampires, um, if an epidemic ran its course, uh, I'm not sure how they explained away the vampire. You know, did vampires just sort of run out of juice like a battery run, runs out of juice, you know, just quit preying on people? These things were not addressed very well. So um, the kind of thing that you're talking about, um, I, I would find more in, in other kinds of supernatural lore rather than in the vampire lore. Okay, now we're, uh, unfortunately, we're just about running out of time here. Uh, one thing I did want to say to you, Rosemary, you know, I, I was talking about the Nawals, and I've never really told you this before, but uh, when we met at Point Pleasant, uh, what was it, two or three years ago, uh, one thing I noticed about your energy, because I can see people's energy fields, and most people, like I say, are, are bisected, but uh, I noticed that yours is quadrisected also. And I don't know what the ratio of quadrisected to bisected energy bodies are you know, in the world. I, I, I see a few of the quadrisected, but uh, that's just something you know, I thought was interesting, is that, and I, I never got around to sharing that with you. But, I appreciate uh, that, and I wonder if that has to do with uh, just you know my ability to engage in in very prolonged periods in this sort of work. It um, it could I've always, be. I've always felt that I had a, a very good buffer around me, and I've never mm-hmm. taken the the paranormal for granted by any means. I have a, a very high respect for uh, some of the very powerful entities out there. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm able to engage in levels and lengths of this work that, that seem to deplete other people. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, it, you're, this. you know, one of the, you know, we can talk about this later, but the, um, you know, one of the, your abilities with that would be that you have a greater capacity to store energy and to manipulate it, you know, once you learn how to manipulate because you've got four compartments of energy instead of just two. And so you can have more control over it. But, um, but yeah, that was uh, something I, I thought I would share with you. And that's something could have been genetic. You may have been born that way. Or it could have been something because of this line of work you're in that you may be developed. Because I believe it can be developed through proper meditation. But um, I can well, talk to you more about that later. Yeah, most of my adult life, I've engaged in meditation, and and I've always recommended that to people, that Mm -hmm. if you're going to get involved in any branch of paranormal or occult studies or research, uh, establish a daily practice of meditation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's good for you either way. (laughs) I think it's good either way. Biologically or, or spiritually. Mm-hmm. Now we're we're just about out of time, you know, for both our shows actually. Uh, so why don't you tell us, Rosemary, a little bit about what you have coming up, what you're doing? I know this is the busiest time of uh, year for you. I know you're going to be on coast to coast. I think uh, next week or sometime soon, anyway, on the 27th or something. I will be on and, coast to 
post on October 27th in the first hour of the show. It's my uh, sort of annual Halloween time appearance. Um, I have one more paranormal conference coming up. That's the first weekend in November at uh, Ramblewood in Darlington, Maryland. It's uh, a very haunted, old, uh, vintage uh, kind of, um, um, I guess you could call it a mansion maybe or large home. Uh, Otherwise, I'm out in the colleges now for the rest of the month. I just uh, came off a weekend in Salem, Massachusetts very witchy time of year uh, in Salem. I will be there for Halloween night. I'm participating in the Witches Ritual for the Dead. Cool. Cool. Busy, busy. Never a dull day. Never a dull day. (laughs) I love it. I love what I do. You know, it's it's fascinating work. And uh, there's so much that uh, we have yet to explore. And uh, it's just wonderful to be out there on the front lines and you know looking into all of these things yeah yeah i envy you, you know, all the different things you get to do and you're living the dream but. yeah she gets to to go out and uh and and we get to see the reports after she gets back <laughs> oh and you have an open invite for for the uh, whaley house when you come down here in uh, february for the uh troy taylor um paracon so let me Thank know you, if uh, I'm no going to be following that up with you, uh, the folks uh, out there in the audience. The weekend of February 18th and 19th, Troy Taylor, the American Ghost Society, is having his first ever uh, West Coast Haunted America conference in San Diego, and uh, I'm sure we'll be able to hook up Tracy and yep. uh, share some adventures. Looking forward to that. It's on um, prairieghost.com website if, for people who want to check that out. And why don't you give us your website, too, Rosemary? My yeah. website is Visionary Living, www.visionaryliving.com. I have a calendar with my activities, uh, an archive of articles on a lot of different topics. Uh, and uh, hopefully in the spring we can all get together and talk about my next new book on the gin. A uh, very yes. exciting topic that's uh, hitting some high notes in the paranormal community now as awareness oh, yeah. is being raised on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to read that. <laughs> well, we're just about out of time, so I want to thank you again, Rosemary, for coming on. Uh, this was a great interview, and I really appreciate it. Me too. Well, thank you, thank Marcus you. and Tracy. I think we, we got into a real interesting discussion, and um, I really appreciate uh, spending the time with you and look forward to getting into some other topics on down the road. Yeah, I'd love to. Likewise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Rosemary, well, you, you take care, and uh, I will be in touch with you. Very good. Thank All you, right, Rosemary. Th- thank you. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.